Welcome back to Subspace Radio, and welcome back, Rob. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, one week off, it felt weird. It's like we were on uh, mainstream Australian television and they're programming Star Trek on like late at night, and it, there's no regular dates, and they've, we've skipped a week. I love the visit from our special guest, Jason Snell, and thank you again, Jason, for doing that. But uh, Thank you, Jason. I felt a little, I have to be honest, I felt a little guilty recording without you, Rob. <laughs> I was sitting here very conscious that there was an episode of Star Trek that you were being robbed of the opportunity to share your thoughts about. Look, look, um, yeah, Kevin, we're at that point where I can reveal, yeah. you know, just a little bit of the ego, took a bruise when I'm there going, well... They just can't do it without me. Can't do it with, without me. With, yeah. And, and oh no, we can bring in um, someone. I was a little too quick to suggest that I could replace you. Is that what you're saying? And we can get the upgrade. So yeah. <laughs> um, so not only did you find a replacement, you went up a league. So um, that's fine. That's that. That's fine. Um, uh, welcome back to the gutter with Rob Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, irreplaceable, Rob. Irreplaceable. <laughs> Well, thank you, Jason, for joining us. J Jason will do in a pinch, but I'm glad you're back. Well, it was a pleasure to to have Jason in 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 my stead, and uh, and you got to talk about um, you know Peanut Hamper and all her deceitful glory. What a series of episodes we are going through here! I feel like every week I am coming to the table agog at how good a half hour of Star Trek we have just witnessed. Well. Well, Mr. Kevin Yank, I think we have come to our first impasse. Ah. This most recent episode, I wasn't all that impressed with. Oh, Crisis Point 2 didn't do it for Crisis you. Crisis Point 2 did not do it for me at all. I was a little bit... That surprises me because you are square in the target audience of so much of what this episode was doing. There was a point at the end where I'm just there going, the big twist that they did telecast in their usual lower decks type of, uh -huh. oh, I hate those type of twist uh, cliffhanger endings, and they gave us one. But that yep. cliffhanger ending, for me took away all the work of the episode, and it gave me that case of, uh, what's the point? Wow. Well, uh, no wonder we are here to talk about characters who died but then didn't, because I think that is going to be a theme of, does the resurrection rob the death of its weight? I think we're going to talk about that extensively here today. Yeah, 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 yeah. But let's dig into the episode proper before we talk about the twist ending. Of course. Crisis Point 2, Paradoxus, of course, a follow-up to the Crisis Point episode that we had where Mariner worked out her demons by playing holodecks with the crew of the Cerritos as supporting cast. In this one, it's uh, Boimler who wrote us a movie, and it starts like something right out of a late TNG-era movie with the Sovereign-class ships swooping in obscuring the sun and saving the day right in front of a Romulan warbird, one of those one of those sleek new ones that appeared in Nemesis. That's right. Everyone remembers um, Nemesis, right? Right, Nemesis? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Tom Hardy, anyone? The summary for me is that we, we basically got two Star Trek movies here. We got the original movie that Boimler wrote, where Tendi got to roleplay being a captain mm -hmm. and realized that she wants to be a captain. And then we got the, the um, generated 
movie that the holodeck made for Boimler when he, disillusioned by the death of his transporter clone, veered from the path and started following the nonsense that was procedurally generated for him by the computer, uh, which took him to some revisits of some um, less memorable Star Trek movies, I will say. There were references to the Star Trek V rock monsters that weren't on the planet of Shatanari, uh, which is like Shakari, but Shatner. That's right, yes. We had uh, the Kitty Hawk reveal, which was a replay of the V'ger Voyager. Of the V'ger, and it didn't make any sense whatsoever, which which (laughs) Boynton pulled out. And then, just to sweeten it all, we had uh, a cameo from Captain Sulu at the end. That's right. We did have the return of George Takei and uh, hearing that beautiful, soulful voice um, and saying, uh, (laughs) calling his horse horsey. At any yeah. point. The horsey is going to bite you now. Want to feed the horsey? <laughs> uh, I really want to have been a fly on the wall in the pitch meeting in which they sold George Takei on the idea that he would be feeding a horse on the Kirk family ranch. Yeah, look, that was that was one of multiple things that kind of annoyed me a bit. It seemed to be doing a bait and switch for no reason. That, to me, seemed to be a reference to the the off-screen disagreements that the two actors have and, and playing that for laughs within the universe. Yeah, yeah. So For me, I'm just there going, if you're going to bring back Sulu, embrace that. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and uh, for, for me, it's like, you know, well done, George, for taking it, but it seemed to be lessening his appearance. Mm. Um, I by... agree. It took me until the second watch to actually, like, listen to the advice that he gave Boiler in his... Heat struck haze, and it was actually beautiful advice of how how shall I put it? The seeming randomness of death reflects the randomness of joy that we find in our everyday lives. And if we spend our entire lives trying to understand the, the why people die, we will miss the random joy that comes our way. That is literally I, just what I said. <laughs> <laughs> For me, if it just if it opened on the the futuristic streets of San Francisco, where Sulu was born. He's got his, you know, apartment or, you know, and he's just, you know, living the high life and go as he should and go straight into that. It sort of like lessened his appearance for me by flicking in a a Kirk bait and switch. So I agree. So yeah, it's sort of like going, come on, have respect for for Sulu. All right. Um, For me. That was it. I mean, he did get to say the lion horsey, and the horsey's going to bite you now. Um, <laughs> but yes, and so all those type of things that would have endeared me in the episode, I kind of went, yeah. oh, all right. So uh, yes, I did notice it's a movie episode, so they did digitally add in the grain and the, oh, yeah. the loops like film, and I'm there going, eh. Um, I felt Rutherford was really friggin' annoying this episode. Like, oh, like you were on real, I, I was with Tendi. I didn't think he deserved when he just flipped and went, oh, of course, you'd be a great captain. Yeah, you do that. Yeah. I'm going, no, nah, Rutherford, you've been a dick this whole time. Um, and kind of takes away from... Take a hint, yeah. Yeah, and also... S- see with, that your friend is, you know, taking this seriously? Yeah. You shouldn't and need her to spell it out? The whole process of a, a holodeck within this universe, no matter how artificial it is, everyone... Mm takes it seriously so that case of rutherford so leaning into you know let's steal the australian punk's outfit and steal his pants saying really corny lines when the doctor hologram dies and all that type of stuff 
rubbed me up the wrong way. I don't know why. I don't know. I've watched the episode twice and it's and it solidified for me that type of stuff. I don't know why this episode in particular, because I didn't think it did anything outside of the usual references and stuff. Maybe mm. it felt because they'd already done it before, uh, sort of like felt a bit more ham-fisted as opposed to mm. some more seamless ways of doing it. Something I noted was the things that made me laugh the loudest this episode were less funny lines and more sight gags. Yeah. The stepping over the black letterbox in order to exit the holodeck because <laughs> there was a movie going on in the holodeck. Yeah. When you watch it the second time, you realize they telegraph that by when Boimler leaves, he the letterbox is out of frame, so you don't see the gag. But as he leaves, he kind of looks down and goes, whoop, and, and it is not explained until later what that was. So just that little attention to detail delighted me to the point of laughing out loud. The other one that really got me was when they were watching the Star Trek II computer simulation of what the MacGuffin was going to do. The the sidebars that were there to make it widescreen yes. were the exact same sidebars that we get in Star Trek II <laughs> when we're watching the Genesis probe simulation Yes, uh, on regular ones. So yeah, just the moment it cut to that and the sidebars were there, I laughed and laughed. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that, the fact that those were the laugh points to me meant that the episode was less funny in the text. Mm. Uh or, or if it was just exploring another kind of comedy. Yeah. I felt like the characters were playing a lot more earnest this episode. Boindler well. especially. It was interesting to yeah. see Boindler in such a defeated state of mind. And it mm. was nice to see Mariner be so um, uh, sympathetic. Instantly supportive. Yeah. Instantly supportive. And always played that whole hurt thing. There wasn't that really... I didn't get a sense of there being this antagonistic thing. Mariners, they're going. What? What's going on? And so when she mm. instantly finds out, they're just they're going. Nope. Let's let's do this. So I really appreciated that. Um, yeah. But yeah, to quote the castle, it was the vibe. Maybe mm. just was. Maybe I'm still riding on the highs of uh, of D Space Nine. The go back in time and assassinate Kennedy thing was another reference to not something that happened in Star Trek, but something that happened off screen around Star Trek. That was the one of the original pitches for Star Trek II by Gene Roddenberry was uh -huh. we would make a uh, movie in which the, the, the climax was Spock having to be the shooter on the grassy knoll taking out Kennedy. Uh, right. And everyone thought that was a ridiculous and terrible idea and it did not get made. But, well, um, there's a, um, a famous episode. Uh, for me, it's the only good episode. It's the first episode of um, the much marginalized season seven of Red Dwarf, a great uh, comedy, another great comedy uh, sci-fi show where mm. they come back after... Uh, six, seven years off the air with uh, Ticket to Ride. Um, and uh, the final sequence is uh, JFK has to go back and shoot himself. <laughs> I feel like I watched that, but I have no memory of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the only, for me, it's the only good episode in season seven, which is a lot of hard work. Uh, I feel like I would be remiss in my journalistic duties if I didn't ask you for a verdict on the Australian accents in Sydney, <laughs> 1982. I was actually quite happy with the Australian accents. They were actually oh, yeah? quite good. Putting them as punks, uh, I, I do that in inverted commas, uh, uh -huh. gives you a bit more leeway so you can be a bit broader with the accent. So, yeah. um, so it did come across as a 
harsh, bogan-esque type of accent. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, not even the thrill of going, oh, we're finally in Australia in Star Trek. We got close where Tom Paris is in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the accent was okay. It was all right. Okay. They only, they, they <laughs> mercifully only gave them like two lines or something. Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's deal with the the rug pull of it all. That the, the emotional heart of this episode was Boimler finding out his transporter clone had had died for no reason, suffocated by neurazine gas in his quarters, and uh, the reveal at the end of the episode is that he is actually alive. That this was a faked death so that he could join Section Thirty One. It isn't the Defiant, right? It's a similar model design to the Defiant. I suspect we are yet to find out, but uh, the Defiant-class ship is certainly an echo of the last time a transporter clone went rogue, and Thomas Riker in Deep Space Nine returns and hijacks the Defiant in the episode titled Defiant. Uh, Get it? So, (laughs) yeah, it's it's all there. Um, I just, I guess I'm feeling like reserving judgment to see what they're going to do with it, but... Best way to I have it. to say, my hopes are not super high. Like, I, I think I've had enough of Section 31, and um, the prospects of a Section 31-based show do not have me super excited. They were, they were trying to do that, weren't they, as like a spin-off yeah. from Discovery? That's the promise, is George Yu, the reason she, has, she went forward in time and now has been sent back in time is that she is going back in time in order to be the lead in a section 31 show yeah where she came from but uh yeah i don't know giving us the show that that none of us wanted what if starfleet was terrible <laughs> we could just watch picard for that or, or <laughs> discovery season one um, yeah, well, we'll see, we'll see. But uh, it did lead you to suggest that our topic for today could be Times characters seemed to die but didn't. Yes, and leads into the broader spectrum, like we mentioned, of whether, the, you know, whether this return in some way, shape, or form lessens the impact of their their passing yeah. to begin with. And ultimately, what's the friggin' point? I feel like we need to start and at the obvious place, which is Spock in Star Trek Two. Yes, good choice. Good choice. That is a good starting point because you know his his sacrifice at the end, which mm. is set up so beautifully with the the mantra that is st- sticking with Star Trek to this day: the needs of the the many outweigh the needs of the one. He put his yeah. uh, mantra into practice by uh, sacrificing himself so the crew of the Enterprise could live, and an incredible death scene where you just see the sheer brilliance of um, Shatner and um, Nimoy at work. Lovely moments for for Scotty as well. He's dead already. Just colors of those characters that we never saw any other time. Oh, the two of them McCoy holding him, well. the, him mm. and uh, McCoy holding him back. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. I have this in my hand here, this book called The 50-Year Mission, The Complete Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of Star Trek. Awesome. And I went looking for the section on Spock's resurrection. And I'll just read two quotes, both by William Shatner. <laughs> the first is, I don't know whether the Star Trek series could have gone on without Spock. It certainly would have been different and probably not as good. The Spock-Kirk interrelationship is really the key to so much for the way the stories are told. 
On the one hand, lovely to hear the acknowledgement from from the lead that Spock was a necessary element. Why do I feel there's going to be a big bus around the corner? <laughs> also by William Shatner in a completely separate interview, I gather. Bringing back someone from the dead loses validity. I think that as a dramatic device, a time warp does the same thing for me. To go back in time is to rob you of the essential jeopardy. It should be life and death. And if it's death, it should be death. <laughs> Oh, the many layers of William Shatner. Yeah. I mean, what ends up on screen in Star Trek II is an ending that I think walks the line so deftly that if you are if you don't know what's coming, you will watch it and you will feel the death. You will feel the loss. You will cry with Spock's crewmates for his passing. Yeah. And believe he's gone. But once you watch Star Trek Three, or once you're told what's about to happen next, you go back and all the signs are there. Remember. The lore of, of the franchise tells a different story, but when you look at what's actually on screen, we have the very prominent quote uh, to Savik, who has experienced the Kobayashi Maru, Spock saying, there are always dot, 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 possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, the remember moment, of course. Remember. Which I was reminded uh, last week with Jason, who talked about the season three episode Requiem for Methuselah, in which Spock wipes Kirk's mind of the painful memories of his girlfriend by saying, forget. He, he does a mind and says, ah. forget. And here in Star Trek II, it's played the opposite, remember, uh, which is a beautiful mirror. Yes. And then the final moments after they send the photon torpedo down to the planet with Spock's body in it. There are lines, he's not really dead as long as we remember him, yeah. says McCoy. And uh, I believe the final monologue from Kirk saying, if Genesis is indeed life from death, I must return to this place again. It feels almost on the nose how clear it is that they're bringing him back once you know it is there. Yeah, it ends on hope. After losing yeah. his best friend, after one of my favorite sections in any movie, let alone just a sci-fi movie, where earlier in the film, you know, Kirk is there at the bottom of 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 the rung, and um, uh, Carol Marcus asks how he feels, and he goes, you know, there's a man out there who I haven't seen in decades trying to kill me, a son that I never even knew I had, old. I feel so old, worn out. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the film, after all this, you've got, you know, Carol Marcus, you've got McCoy, you've got it. McCoy grinning like a Cheshire cat. It's so weird. When you think Spock is dead, you're like, why are you all so cheerful? And then Kirk says the line, young, I feel young. It's, it's, it's clearly setting up to go, you know, do not mourn. We are yeah. leading towards hope. And for me, the death of Spock and his redemption is hard fought. And that type of stuff I'm on board with. It's not, okay. it's like, like I said, we had to go through the hell of Star Trek three that I won't watch again. Kirk had to lose so much. He lost mm. his ship. He lost his, we find out later, he lost his respect within Federation, but he loses his admiralty. And he yeah. lost, most important of all, his son. He lost everything that was important to him, everything that made him who he was, 
just to get his friend back. And as mm. he said, and they bring it all back with, you know, um, where Spock says to him, why would you do this? And he flips it around and goes, because the needs of the one outweigh mm. the needs of the many. And you just go, and then that carries on, you know. He has to go through two films and to get himself at a point where Spock is back to himself. So he's going through his own healing process and finding his personality again through Star Trek IV, which is a wonderful thing. It, he, the humor of it and the drama of it. And it's always that heartbreaking thing when Spock is emotionally distant, like in Star Trek, mm. the motion picture. It isn't mm. until like he goes and mind melds with Vija and he's yeah. smiling and he looks at him and looks at the captain and just goes, Jim. Yeah. yeah. You love those moments where, because Nimoy was such an incredible actor when you get him back to accepting that yeah. humanity. When um, it's withheld. Yeah. yeah. It's not like a quick fix and always oh, back now. You know, Kirk, especially, who made that choice, lost everything. And it's so heartbreaking. So you're saying, as someone who famously despises Star Trek Three. The resurrection of Spock is not the reason for that. That is something that you feel like they did well. Yes. The fact that it wasn't an easy thing and the fact that they took so much away from Kirk. And he, mm. like, because, again, he was sort of like, in many ways, the the superhero that no one could touch him. Kind of one of the reasons why I was so annoyed with Mariner at the start of Lower Decks. You know, nothing, you know, nothing would, would fix itself to, to Kirk. Mm -hmm. So to have Kirk you know, do his usual rebellious thing. You know, the word, sir, the word is no, therefore I'm going anyway. Yeah. Um, but then you go, okay, no, no, no. This has consequences, real consequences. You want your best friend back. You're going to lose your ship. You're going to lose your position. You're going to lose mm -hmm. your respect. You are going to lose your son. And you have to go through all that hell, plus go back through time, find humpback whales, bring them back, face trial. You have to go through two movies of hell so that you have your friend back to the position where they were, you know, two movies ago. It's that type of balance I, I, I can get on board with. It doesn't rob death of its stakes in the Star Trek universe either. It's not a question of, oh, we, well, we figured out how to bring Spock back. Now no one has to die. Exactly. It, it, no, it's yeah. not just a... It's not a repeatable uh, formula. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it gives, and for me, in many ways, it gives that death more weight because Kirk and the others had to sacrifice so much more mm. to get him mm -hmm. back. So they'd lost more, really, than they had gained. They get their friend back, but there's a lot that, you know, sure, they get a replacement Enterprise, but nothing can replace David. So, yeah, that's a good one to start off with, because for me, I'm okay with that because it's two movies of hell that he has to get through to to get to that position where he's on a ship as captain with his, with his uh, number one back. Instead of going in chronological order, I'm going to suggest, because we've started with what is perhaps the best death and resurrection in Star Trek... Is there something that is anywhere near that in terms of the the level of execution, the level of storytelling, how well it is done? Look, to be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you, Kevin, no, because the ones no. I've been putting down, I've been kind of have kind of shit me. So you all right, so we're jumping straight to the shit list. <laughs> is there any more that you can think of that matches that type of warranted? Not, eh? not really. <laughs> 
Uh, me neither. <laughs> I'm Here's, glad we're on the same page. Let's just go back and forth naming characters, and we'll see who runs out first. Okay. I'm going to go Philippa Georgiou. Georgiou. Okay. I didn't have Georgiou. I went uh, big. I went Data. Data. Got it. Oh, yeah. That's on my list. Um, Hugh Culber. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was hard fought and, and having to go into spores dimensions and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, and then ages of not recognizing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, Who else you got? I got, well, Tasha Yar. Oh, good. Yes. You had mentioned Tasha the other week and I had forgotten about her. She sort of comes back. Alternate version and then yeah. uh, Romulan daughter. On. Yes. Yeah. Elnor? Yes. Yeah. I had Morn. <laughs> Morn? I forgot Morn died. How did Morn, Morn die? Morn died. He just like what? faked his own death and then just came back. Oh, of course he faked his death. I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Yep, yep. That was a big one for me. Jean-Luc Picard at the end of season one. I was sort of yeah. like putting all the goodwill I can into season one of Picard, and it just yeah. went lower and lower and lower in my expectations. But I kept on going, it's still good. Yeah. It's, and and by the last episode, I went, that's it. Yeah. I, I've given you everything, Picard. <laughs> and now you just go, and now he's a robot. Hooray! Uh, obviously, Shax. Of course, Yes. Shax died and nobody's talking about it. Or when somebody does want to bring it up, Shax then, you know, gets angry. You know, it is intended as a joke. I doubt it will ever be referenced again in Star Trek canon, but the joke they are making is that there are um, dark arts at work in <laughs> Starfleet where they can bring people back from the dead when they wish. Uh, and the less you ask about it, the better for your sanity. <laughs> but that seems to me as like the ultimate end game here. And this is why Lower Decks does it this way, is that if death is reduced to a minor inconvenience and can be reversed off screen without explanation, then there are no stakes to a death on screen. Exactly. Exactly. And like in, like Star, even in Star Trek, the motion picture, when we have the horrifying transporter disaster, um, yeah. they are horrified for about 30 seconds, but then, oh, okay, well, it gives way for another Vulcan to get on the ship. And you're going, oh, that's, uh, that's a We're back to the red shirt problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, uh, I kind of want to judge these by their weight, like regardless of, of whether the ultimate return robbed the death of its weight, which I think in many slash most cases here it does. Mm. In the moment when the character died, did you feel the death? Cool. Uh, is an interesting question. Uh, let's start with uh, Data, because Data for me, yeah. Data's death, I do in inverted commas, in Nemesis, yeah doesn't seem earned. It seems like they're trying to recreate a um, a Spock moment, like literally trying to do that. Um, and Brett Spiner's sort of like flexing his muscles a bit going, well, if Nimoy could do it a couple of decades ago, um, I'll do the same flexing. Kill me off. Yeah. This is a category for me, I think, is that regrettable deaths, that, mm. that they were written... I'm going to say cheaply, that's the word I'm going to use today, and that the audience sort of rejected it, and 
the writers ultimately had to find a way to backtrack it and create an honorable end for the character or an honorable future for the character. Hugh Culber falls into this category for me yes. as well. Shock, death on screen, uh, used for impact that I can only read as the writers assuming the character was disposable and that the audience was not emotionally attached to them. So yeah. Use it as a tool where the point was the impact it would have on Stamets in the, in the series. Especially with Hugh's passing, uh, with a lot of issues within Discovery's first season for me, is that they were infusing so many of these modern elements of television storytelling with mm. these shock deaths and violence and gore and stuff that has become commonplace with shows like Game of Thrones and stuff like that. So it seemed out of place. And so therefore the audience rejected even more. Same with the swearing and issues like that in Picard. Um, there seems to be that type of rejection of that type of bold cruel type of uh death and their cruelty and deaths you know, i've talked about a lot in star trek 3 but there's that build up to it as opposed to just a sudden do it for the shock of it another category of death that i'm going to suggest here death in return is the uh having your cake and eating it to death which is that i think death in pop culture stories at the moment, death is becoming increasingly like the one thing that an audience will feel, especially in a science fiction universe where so much is possible and like injury can be reversed uh, almost without uh, limits. And that these characters are nearly superhuman. The idea that they meet their death is almost the only thing you can do to a character that an audience will respond to in feeling as it is an irreversible moment. Yeah. Um, it is the, in some ways it's the only stakes that we have left in a universe where technology makes anything else possible. Yeah. And um, in other shows, they do it through magic. A weird thing. A lot of these genre based shows are defined by death, mm. like your walking dead stuff was all about which characters are getting killed off and how high the regular body count is. So you can't attach yeah. yourself. So, yeah. And I think at least a couple of times that I can think of Star Trek wanted to have its cake and eat it too. They wanted to try to use a death to provoke an emotional reaction in an audience, but immediately reverse it because the show felt like I couldn't get away with that. Yeah. So the two I'm thinking of are Picard and Elnor most recently. Yeah. Where the entire season of Picard is built around the idea that Picard is, you know, meeting his end. He discovers he has a ticking time bomb in his brain. It's this long promised defect that is finally going to catch up with him. One last he's ride. Die at the end of the season. So he's taking one last ride. And this season ends with he dies. Oh, it's so sad, isn't it? Please cry. Okay, are you done crying? Great. Now we're bringing him back right away. Because we've got two more seasons to do. We promised yeah. this, okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna just do one season with Patrick Stewart playing this role. We've got money to make. Come on, we've got subscribers. It literally felt like they had him step off the set for thirty seconds so that we could all have the moment of the death, and then he is like, "Okay, great, we're done with that. I'm back now." Elnor's likewise, I, I mean, it's a bit more of a long-running thing, but they go into the parallel universe, Elnor dies, 
And Rafi is broken up about it. And if anything works about Elnorth's death, it is the character journey that it takes Rafi on. Yeah. But I don't think anyone bought that Elnor was dead. Certainly if they had killed them, it would be like, what the heck was the point of that character? Yes. He sat in the wings of season one, <laughs> got nothing to do except one cool sword fight. Mm -hmm. And then they brought him back for season two and immediately killed him. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. That's great. Giving work to an Aussie guy, but then put him on the sideline. So they bring him back briefly as a as a hologram. And at that point, for me, the writing was on the wall. It was, okay, cool. The actor's still in it. He's definitely coming back. They just, for story purposes, needed to create an emotional journey for Rafi here. And unfortunately, his part in the season suffered because of it. Yeah. But when he appeared on the view screen in the final episode, it was like, yep, there that is. It was not, oh my God, he's alive. So again, I'm going to say, just like Picard, it was a death that was almost preemptively reversed mm. uh, so that it didn't really carry any weight to begin with. No, and especially like, because they invested so much at the start about like the loss of, uh, you know, the Romulan planet and the weight of that. And it's so much so that it caused Picard to leave the Federation. So this type of weight of sort of like this harshness was being brought in, mm -hmm. but there's no real consequences for that. So yes. People from our list that we haven't talked about, Georgiou and Yar. Do they have anything in common for you, or are they different deaths? Yeah, it, well, with Tash Yar, it was that case of, like like I said, that was the big thing that turned me off uh, next gen, because I was so yeah. invested in her as a character. And I'll be honest, it was she was so briefly in it, like the original Georgiou is only in it for the first two episodes of Discovery, and she was there to be killed yeah. uh, in order to to launch Burnham on her journey, it seems. But I loved Georgiou as a captain. I loved the Shinzo as a ship so much that uh, when the Discovery finally turned up in episode three, I was I was almost disappointed that we weren't going to get that series on the Shinzo. I mean, there's, for me, issues with... Uh, Discovery One is like spending far too much time in the mirror universe. So they had that excuse to really lean into the violence and the, the shock value of killing off characters and stuff like that. And so bringing in that new version of Michelle Yeoh's character to show her range as a performer and how incredibly good she is at playing evil as well as yeah as well as good and then that arc of her redemption in season two that does echo yar yeah yar does not exactly come back just like captain philippe georgiou does not exactly come back the actor comes back to play an echo of that character with a very different tone yeah and it's the same with sila yar's uh we'll say daughter yes daughter half romulan daughter yes yeah. Except that Sila is not redeemed. She is ultimately undone as a villain. It's a lot like um it's a lot like Dax as well. Like yeah. we lose Jadzia and we mm. gain Ezri, but um Indeed. but it Ezri's a whole new character. And that's a whole arc at the start of season yeah. seven of D Space Nine of what this means to have the person back with the memories, but a new person in that inhabiting that body as well. Hmm. Anyway, many deaths, several categories. Ultimately, none of them as good as Spock. And uh, I, I don't know about you. I wish they would find some new stories to tell other than 
which of our characters are we going to kill this season and shock you in the process? And it is interesting, you know, because we are coming up to uh, 60 years of Star Trek and you do get to that point of going, if you are revisiting plot points or arcs that have been done before, are you limiting yourself from the potential of what this franchise can do and what the original, you know, a statement of intention was, and I'm um, definitely yeah. feels that they're hamstrung by what they believe audiences want Star Trek to be, as opposed to what it actually is. Because I do love to give our listeners old episodes to go back and watch. Definitely. This one definitely does not fit the brief, but it almost did. This is Star Trek The Next Generation Season 7, Episode 15, Lower Decks, the namesake of our new series here today. I think because Lower Decks, the comedy is so comedic. This episode, I remembered it as a comedy, but it is not. It is a drama, but it's told with the same building blocks of this new series. Mm. Where it is a story of some of the junior officers on board the Enterprise and how in their jobs, they occasionally cross paths with the command crew. They get glimpses of a story that's going on off screen, but they don't get the whole story. Yeah. And they gossip about it and they draw their own conclusions. And some of those conclusions end up wrong. The reason I bring up this episode today is because it also ends in the death of a character. That's One right. of our Lower Decks crew, Sito Jaxa, in this episode, she's a return character from a previous episode of The Next Generation called The First Duty. Uh, and that's when Wesley Crusher is at the Academy and is involved in a scandalous cover-up of a training accident. Picard, in this episode, chastises Jaxa, calls her into his ready room and basically tears her a new one and says, I don't know how you got on board my ship. I don't have traitors on my ship and you're never going to amount to anything. And ultimately, the character picks herself up and she tells off the captain and says, it's not fair what you did to me. And it was a test. It was a test. Captain Picard was trying to see whether she had the medal to go on this dangerous mission to uh, escort a Cardassian defector who's returning to Cardassian space as a spy. She was posing, she's to pose as his Bajoran captive and she goes off on that secret covert mission and dies. Mm -hmm. And her Lower Decks crewmates never really fully understand what happened to her. Although Lavelle is pretty sure he got a promotion because she died. It is a heartbreaking, dramatic episode. And it ends in the death of a crew member that we feel. Going to the behind the scenes stuff here. I found a quote. In early drafts of the script, Sito Jax's death was somewhat more ambiguous. Jerry Taylor uh, said, when I mentioned that to Michael Piller, who was running the show at the time, he said, absolutely not. She's dead. She stays dead. That would undermine the whole episode. So there you go. They do know how to do a meaningful death on Star Trek, or at least they used to. And uh, in the exact opposite to that, I recommend an episode I previously mentioned that yeah, shows that death means nothing when you have Who Mourns for Mourn, D Space Nine, Season 6, <laughs> Episode 12, where they do a whole episode mourning the loss of a character that we hardly knew, finding out so much more about him, and then he just shows up at the end. The quintessential, what was the <laughs> friggin' point of that entire episode? Indeed. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for uh, for the stroll through the graveyard uh, with me there, Rob. Oh, look, thank you for having me back. You know, it's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> Were you worried I wouldn't? <laughs> you know, the 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 ego of a podcaster is a very fragile thing. <laughs>